So welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. And my name is Peter Liu, and I'm one of the hosts, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Silverman. So Jason, I noticed that you have a new addition today compared to the last time we had a uh, Zoom meeting. On your yes, face. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, you know, and and hello, greetings to you too, Peter. But yes, my my new item that I think you're talking about, and this is the benefit of seeing each other over Zoom mm-hmm. and not just you know talking over the phone, is is I am sporting a mustache. That is what I was um, referring to. Yep. Yes, this is so. This is November, um, <laughs> and November is a, uh, an important uh, an important fundraising opportunity for for me every year. My my uh, personal. On the personal side, my my father has gone through prostate cancer, and he um, had successful treatment, and then recurrence, which he's uh, currently successfully dealing with. Wow. So it's kind of a, a personal uh, stake in the game, so to speak. But every year, I do grow a mustache for uh, for November, which my wife hates. <laughs> she she does not like it. Anytime I post anything on social media, uh, you know, fundraising, um, she'll share it. But it's always like this grudging, yeah. Please do this. So just, you know, l- let this month end. Right. I, uh, I too, uh, don't shave in November, but um, unlike some who do this for a charity, for, you know, good, for good in society, I do this more just uh, to look ridiculous. And um, uh, because we have a baby now, my wife um, is insisting that we take pictures as a family and then make like holiday cards that we're going to send out. I mean, we have no one's addresses. I don't know how we're going to do this, but um, the only way that I agreed was if I was allowed to keep my uh, facial hair for the, for for the uh, photography session, which I did. I'm sure it looks ridiculous. And I shaved right afterwards and she was furious, but (laughs) we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. So next episode, Peter will be joining <laughs> from my house. Exactly, where he will be living temporarily yeah. <laughs> from the garage um, where I've been living for the past uh, two weeks. And this is also, I think, this is the yes, it is the episode that's coming out before our 2021 NASPGIN annual meeting. But yeah, it's gonna be awesome. I mean, obviously, we all wish that could be in person, but you know, it is what it is. COVID's still a thing, I- unfortunately. What what was your favorite NASPGAN, either conference or memory? You know, I I still feel like the the NASPGAN in Hollywood, Florida, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was awesome! I mean, the the location, yeah. and uh, as we briefly talked about in Miguel Sapp's episode, I mean, they had a karaoke bar slash nightclub in the hotel lobby. Like, how could you get any better than that? I mean, at least for for me. Um, yeah, it was incredible. So I, I, that that was was my favorite. I had an awesome time and, uh, yes. I mean, I also like learned a lot academically is really good, but there's a karaoke bar in the lobby. I mean, that's the best. How about you? Uh, actually I, 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 have loved pretty much every NASP again I've gone to, but, but the one that really sticks out for me is the year that I attended teaching in tomorrow. It was oh, the year yeah. that it was in San Diego mm-hmm. and it was a great meeting, a uh, great location. San Diego's yeah. a great city, a uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic location. And uh, we had as a teaching in tomorrow group, we have some, some great people that I'm still friends with across mm-hmm. North America. And uh, we went to the zoo. 
we took nice. a side trip okay. to the zoo. We hung out on the beach. We we like hung out on sunset on the beach, and uh, like you said, uh, learned a lot academically right. too. Uh, it was a great course. academic meeting, but uh, just the the personal connections and uh, uh, those kind of lifelong uh, yeah. relationships fostered out of that meeting was was yeah, it's just a highlight for me. Yeah, I mean, I the other day on Facebook, I guess it was now maybe a month or two ago. It, or a month ago, because it was NASP again, like pictures from the teaching tomorrow that I went to, which was, I think, in 2012, no, 2011 uh, in Orlando. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those people are still, I mean, obviously, they're now all attending pediatric gastroenterologists around the country. It's crazy. Today, I mean, we're excited. We have an awesome guest to talk about a very important topic. Um, You know, we have for a while wanted to have someone talk about the problem of NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or potentially nutrition-associated fatty liver disease, as our mm-hmm. guest argues. Um, obviously, a problem that's common and unfortunately probably going to get more and more common and have big of a, have even a bigger impact on our uh, work as pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists in the coming years. Absolutely. And uh, we were thrilled to have Dr. Rohit Kohli join us to talk about that topic. I mean, and really who who better to talk about that with us? He's the Chief Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition at CHLA, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. He's the Director of the Donnell Society. He's the Associate Chair in Liver and Intestinal Research. He's a Professor of Pediatric at the, at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Um, and his research has really focused on the pathogenesis of obesity related to fatty liver disease or NAPFLD or nutrition-associated fatty liver disease. And in particular, he's focused upon the role of bile acid signaling as a mechanism for NAPFLD resolution after weight loss surgery. Um, and he's just done a lot of uh, translational research in this area, and he's just a fantastic person to, be, to sort of bridge that uh, clinical and bench research worlds related to this topic. Yeah, and great speaker, great person. All right, on to the show. Dr. Coley, thank you so much once again for joining us for this episode of Bowel Sounds. And um, tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend. Thanks, uh, Dr. Lou. Um, I hope I can call you Peter through this. Yeah, and just you call, call me call Peter. Me <laughs> I'm going to go off script here. Yes, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I, I, I am not going to answer uh, with a book, podcast, or movie. Okay. Um, because I, I really, I thought about this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what the pandemic has taught me is to be closer to family. Oh yeah. That's the movie I want to make. That's the book I want to read. And that's the podcast I want to listen to is my family. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when we had our graduation for the recent uh, fellows, um, from some CHLA, I, I was asked to do a 30 second kind of closure thing for the, for the event. When I, when I got up to speak, I said the same thing. I think that we are family within our unit. So someone needs help in a procedure, research paper, whatever. We're there for each other. But when our home family, our family family needs help, it's us. There's nobody else you're going to call. So make time for your family family. Um, that's what I've really uh, uh, reflected on and understood um, and, and try to be more diligent about 
that yes, we 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 take care of our work family when when we, each of us needs to cover a clinic and we can call or whatever it may be. Uh, but there's nobody else to look after your family. You're responsible, um, so you need to be there for them. So that's what I I, I feel like I want to listen to more. Is um, yeah, if my if my daughter uh, is doing a podcast, then I will listen to her. <laughs> That's the thing. I think that's when I reflected backwards is, is the pandemic has taught me to be closer to my family. Yeah, I love it. But Rohit, you, you have spent much of your career researching, working clinically in, in the area of pediatric NAFLD. So let's just start with basics because we have listeners that are pediatric trainees, that are general pediatricians, that are family physicians. So, uh, you know, what exactly is NAFLD? How do you define it? How do you diagnose it? First off, I hate the name, right? Um, it was a, an acronym uh, developed in adult hepatology by pathologists who looked at liver biopsies and saw alcoholic liver disease. And the internal medicine docs told them that, no, these individuals don't drink. They're teetotalers or minimally. So they can't have alcoholic liver disease. That's how and they discovered that all of those, you know, it was a case series from Mayo back in the 80s. They discovered that all of those individuals had the background of obesity, and therefore they coined the term non-alcoholic NA, fatty liver disease, because they saw fat and inflammation and fibrosis in the liver biopsies. So NAFLD is technically non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I hate the name. Um, a lot of us do. I, I tend to think about it um, from the pediatric lens that a lot of our kids don't drink. <laughs> so, so, so maybe we should call it, if we wanted to uh, bow to nosology for a second and maintain the acronym, uh, nutrition-associated fatty liver disease. Um, and that's what I prefer to use, or obesity-related nice. fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. um, so it, that's, that's where you start. What's the technical definition? If you have more than 5% fat in your liver, that qualifies as fatty liver disease. Can you talk a little bit more about the different phenotypes or presentations within that term? Like what, what do those kids look like when we are seeing them in clinic? Yeah. So NAFLD, NAFLD is the umbrella diagnosis. Where, mm -hmm. So if you have 5% or more fat, you've qualified to be NAFLD. The most common phenotype, of course, is obesity as the background where you have more than uh, 95th percentile BMI for age and sex. However, there is lean NAFLD. Um, there are conditions which can be metabolic derangements and or genetic uh, mutations, which lead you to have more fat in your liver than you should. Um, the consequence thereof uh, can be static disease where you do not have any progression or any inflammation or fibrosis uh, from having that excess fat. And I describe that to families as if you have a house guest and you get along with them. You're okay, <laughs> right? Jason's over uh, Peter's house and they're, they're both hanging out. They're okay. I'm not calling one of you a fat lobbyist, but, no, <laughs> but uh, sometimes you don't get along with your house guest or, or, or your tenant. And that's when you have problems. That's when you have steatohepatitis. Um, and, and a lot of families get scared when you mention the term hepatitis because they think, you know, viral hepatitis. Um, but, but so you have to explain it back to them. This is just like you have appendicitis or sinusitis or esophagitis 
um, uh, the, your, your, your liver is inflamed uh, because it's not getting along with the fat. And if there is significant enough response from the liver, it'll lay down collagen. And that's when you get NASH or you have non-alcoholic. Again, I hate that thing. So it'll say nutrition associated, steato, meaning fat, hepatitis, meaning inflammation or fibrosis. So the technical distinction is you can have either inflammation and or fibrosis. You still qualify to be called NASH. Why are we bothered with this nosology? Why do we care you have NASH? Um, is because if you have fibrosis, that's where the adult data tell us that you end up with more all-cause mortality and increased cardiovascular and liver morbidity. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why we care about this distinction. You've essentially answered the first part of this question about what the what are some of the risks of NAFL, but but maybe I'll ask you to to maybe paint a little bit more of a picture of you know what are sort of the end results of those consequences that you talked about, or the you know sort of define what are when you say uh, liver morbidity, what what does that look like? But also, um, what do we know about the natural history? So you know how likely are we to see the child that is in front of us in clinic? progress to have a meeting criteria for NASH and progress to fibrosis and, and the consequences you're going to talk about? Yeah, that's a very important question. Unfortunately, it is a very big blind spot in pediatric NAFLD in terms of our understanding. That is one of the poorest things we understand is natural history. There are ongoing efforts um, by, by many of our peers um, to bridge that gap, but currently a lot of our data is cross-sectional. So we have some longitudinal data that tells us that there is a potential for progression, but I would actually flip this over a little bit and think about it. That if you have a 10-year-old child in your clinic that already has fibrosis, inflammation, so has NASH, they're already declaring themselves to be a fast-moving object. They're on the wrong trajectory and their disease progression is fast. Those are the individuals we know are already fueling the fire of young adult liver transplantation, which is, by the way, uh, NASH is the fastest growing uh, indication for adult liver transplantation, uh, young adult uh, uh, liver transplantation. Um, by UNO's data, by the United uh, Network for Organ Sharing in the United States data. So the, the consequence is clear for the individuals that are already at high risk because of their genes, mm -hmm. uh, whatever polymorphisms they, uh, that, that we understand to be higher risk, such as PNPLA3 that has been described very, very well now, happens to be more prevalent. The alleles that are uh, harmful, if you want to call them that, or at risk. Uh, more common in the Hispanic population, for instance. So it's a sobering thought uh, to have a 10, 12-year-old child with NASH, with extensive fibrosis, but those are the children that will progress faster. So you're declaring, the cross-sectional data teaches us, I think, that you're already self-declarative. You either have steatosis, you have the living arrangement that you're okay with, with your tenant, or you don't. Mm -hmm. And when you don't, you progress. 
because uh, you've already progressed, you've declared yourself. So uh, uh, it's a big gap for the fellows, uh, pediatric GI trainees or residents who are listening in. This is this is your time. If you want to pick up a project and that's going to be 20 years running, uh, you know, a lot of people made, made careers out of the Framingham Heart Study. So, you know, that's that's the kind of project that this is. Natural history takes time and uh, uh, not uh, not all of us have that luxury so <laughs> some of us are a little bit long tooth now but uh, definitely uh, this is a, a gap that needs to be filled yeah and i think the other reason why for young people especially who are interested in finding an academic topic that this is going to be you know in addition to not having that information this is going to be only a bigger and bigger problem over time so we know that, you know, rates of overweight obesity have been rising in most in, in industrialized countries, at least. So how has that affected the incidence and prevalence of uh, nutrition-associated liver, fatty liver disease in children? I love it, Peter, that you picked up <laughs> nutrition-associated already. I caught myself, yeah, yeah. There's a, a very, very recent paper that came out of um, the Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, and uh, University of California, San Diego. Jeff Schwimmer uh, was the senior author. Uh, in, it came out in, in pediatrics, the AAP journal, uh, which talks about uh, the exact thing you're, you're asking about. They, they looked at uh, a 10-year span. And uh, of course, Kaiser Permanente is a, is a population-based health system where you can have almost like Sweden or something like that, like, or, you know, our neighbors to the North, <laughs> you have a captive audience, so to speak, and you can follow trends and actually follow prevalence. Um, and they saw uh, a increase from, I believe, uh, 33 per hundred thousand to 56 per hundred thousand. So over 10 years uh, of fatty liver disease picked up in their own system with the same diagnostic tools. So uh, it, it's scary. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, and, and of course, the, the engine that's driving this increase in liver comorbidities is nothing different than what you talked about, which is the rise in rates of obesity, poor nutrition. Um, and, and I think I, I hearken back to a slide um, that Dr. Whittington uh, used to use. Um, uh, you know, this, it, it, mentoring is so critical. Um, I still remember how I landed up in fatty liver. I was a first year fellow and uh, it was, I think, March or April already. And I didn't know what my project was going to be in second year. Mm-hmm. And I was standing at uh, Peter's office door. And it's Peter, you know, uh, um, I, what do you think I should do next year? Uh, you guys are working. And I was interested in liver from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you guys are working on a, the mouse model of Atresia in the lab. And maybe I can work with that. And he says, yeah, that would be nice, Rohit, but uh, the fellow a year ahead of you, uh, she's already doing that. So I don't want both of you working on the same project. Why don't you work on mitochondria and NASH? Hmm. And that was it. Wow. That was my why break point, whatever you want to call it, fork in the road. So back to your question. Um, I think, I think uh, he used to mention on one of his PowerPoint slides how cheap it is in terms of scents and bad food. So uh, if you looked at a McDonald's, nothing against a company, but, you know, fast food, um, uh, five cents can buy you a lot of bad calories, right? And, and that is what the, the cheap and easy access to bad 
food is fueling the fire. It's a system, cultural. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and to blame our children for that, right. that is the last thing we should be doing. Right. To help them think through this um, and, and, and make it to unintended bite-sized mm-hmm. uh, for them to be able to work through this is, is my goal in the clinic. Where, where I talk to them about one change at a time. Mm-hmm. First of all, no kid should be on a diet, right? We're not asking you to be on it. We want, want you to change your diet. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I focus on like all the data suggests and even the NASPIGAN guidelines speak to, uh, as the first step, sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, sugary drinks to be out. And I usually will say this to them. Mm-hmm. I'll say, if it's sweet and you can pour, kick it out the door. Nice. I want them to take away something for that 15, 20 minute visit they had with me. And initially I used to go through the whole litany of, you know, five to the AAP plan and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't remember jazz. They'll come back and, 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 and be higher in their weight and stuff. So we have to break it down, make them, make them understand and leave no excuses, leave no excuses. So when you tell them to not do something, uh, which will save the parents money. There's a little bit of incentive there. Mm-hmm. We talked a bit about obesity as a major risk factor for NAFLD. And we know that the, the incidence and prevalence of, of obesity and overweight are increasing. Um, but you've mentioned already some dietary components that are at risk because we know that um, not all overweight is equal in a lot of ways and not all obesity is equal in terms of influence on health. So can you talk to us a little bit about the influence of diet in particular, you mentioned, uh, you know, sugar, but particularly dietary fructose um, and, and fat and the influences on the pathogenesis and progression of NAFLD. No, it's a, it's a good point. It's a good distinction. Why we suggest to uh, even as a society and in our position statements, why we suggest to uh, eliminate or minimize added sugar um, because the disease is fatty liver disease, right? So shouldn't we be eliminating fat? Um, no, because of course, basic biochemistry teaches us, uh, physiology teaches us that there is no mechanism to store sugar as sugar in our bodies, right? There, uh, we can absorb as much fructose as we want, but then when it gets time to uh, storing it away, we have to convert it into triglycerides. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to put it into the cell with insulin and then convert it into triglycerides to be sh- stored as neutral lipid. So the consequence of a high carbohydrate or a high sugar diet is fatty liver disease and insulin resistance and diabetes. Uh, the flip side is since the 70s, to, to some extent, there has been misinformation, which we now understand, and maybe the science wasn't as mature at that time, uh, calling fat out as the culprit, unfortunately. And now we understand inaccurately so. Um, and, and that spawned this whole genre of low-fat diets and low-fat foods. However, uh, nine times out of ten, if you turn that low-fat yogurt around and look at the nutrition label, it's high sugar. Yeah. It's the exact opposite of what you should be doing if you're trying to lose weight. So to make it palatable, to make it tasty, the, the, the label was nice and you thought you're doing the right thing. You're eating low fat, but you're actually eating high sugar. So, you know, so that's where I think we need to refocus 
and, and fix this this anachronism in in our nutrition um, uh, lexicon that it, uh, high sugar is the culprit, not high fat. And do you mind if I just tack on just a, you know, kind of a further point of clarification, you know, and feel free to weigh in on this or, or, or take a pass, but, you know, we talk about sugar and again, is all sugar equal? Like what about, um, you know, the things like high fructose corn syrup um, in a lot of sweetened foods and beverages versus uh, a bit of table sugar, you know, uh, naturally occurring sugars in foods, you know, is there a distinction to be made there? Yes and no. It's a, it's a tight rope and I'll try to walk it. Yes, there is a distinction to be made because there are some sugars, fructose such as you mentioned, that may be more pro-inflammatory for liver specific. Right? Um, we've done murine studies and there's uh, also epidemiological human data where, yes, increased fructose intake parallels with more severe fatty liver disease and NASH. Right? Uh, we've done murine studies and we're, we have ongoing um, clinical trials uh, uh, where we're looking at non-caloric sweeteners, um, specifically uh, brevadiocide, which is the extract from the stevia plant, um, at, at least in the murine studies, showed that it was protective. Uh, despite weight gain to the liver for, for inflammation and fibrosis. So that's the yes part. The no part is when have you taken a diet drink and not had something to eat on the side? The no part is when, uh, when, when you're trying to cure a disease that's caused by obesity, finding a route that only protects the liver isn't going to solve the problem. Uh, so that's why my jingle is still the same, despite our data having, okay, this may be a little bit better for the liver, X, Y, or Z uh, sweetener. Um, if it's sweet and you can pour, kick it out the door. Uh, I, and it, it makes for a lifestyle change for the children. And they're going to sneak something in. It's okay. <laughs> right. um, but, but don't tell them that. Um, uh, so so it's, 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 I have to be a little bit strict in the clinic. Uh, it's going to be water and two glasses of whole milk every day. And that's all you get. And if the parents need once in a while at a birthday party, a glass of lemonade, you know, it's fine. But I'm not going to be saying that or enabling that. The advice is going to be all sugar has to be restricted, especially added sugar has to be eliminated from the diet. Even the American Academy of Pediatrics this year came out finally, I think, uh, that under two, no juices. Mm-hmm. juices are such a big problem. You look at 36 grams or something like that per uh, eight ounce serving of sugar in a fruit juice uh, can. Um, uh, Gatorade, or I'm sure, again, not to mention uh, names, but maybe uh, uh, sports drinks, energy drinks, all these things uh, have tons of sugar in them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, juice is a uh, juice. I, I, you know, going back to my pediatric training, it, it's been a, a real struggle to encourage uh, parents, families to, to stop buying, stop providing juice because we all grew up, you know, there was the, the orange juice on the breakfast table. Juices uh, were included in food guides as a reasonable option for your fruit and vegetable servings. Like there's this whole culture around 
well, juice is normal, natural, healthy uh, product. So when you turn around and say, no, actually, there's not much that separates, uh, a, you know, a drinking box of juice and a, a can of cola. Um, it's a bit of shocking to, to people to hear that. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's very cultural and it's very geographic. Now, having worked pretty much from the East Coast, where I, New York City, all the way to the West Coast, now in between, um, it's very, you know, uh, the, so Cincinnati was right on the border of, of um, uh, uh, the Ohio River. This, the south of us is Kentucky. And so some families, they were, you know, truly sweet tea was their thing. Um, so, uh, so that's where we initially I used to say, okay, you can't drink soda, you can't drink juice. And they would come back and they'd still not have lost anything. I said, so what are you drinking? Sweet tea. Um, <laughs> Or, or two gallons of milk. I mean, it, you know, we've had milk, all of us have milk babies, right? So I, it had to be uh, a learning experience for me that I can't make a list long enough and foolproof enough. Yeah. So it has to be a carte blanche uh, what kind of advice I'm giving them um, because it just, people will find a way. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so we talked about what fatty liver disease is. Um, you know, how do we identify those children in clinic? Like what are the current recommendations for screening and what other investigations are required? And how do you usually monitor these kids other than, you know, monitoring their weight? Yeah. So I think uh, we, we definitely depend on our colleagues uh, in, in general practice, pediatrics, whether they be nurse practitioners, family physicians, pediatricians to do the initial screening for us. And that's what um, uh, the NASPGIN position statement that was published back in 2017 in JPGN speaks to, where uh, between the ages of nine and 10, we advocate that there be a screening uh, done. And we chose those years because it parallels with the endocrinology guidelines for cholesterol uh, general guidelines for cholesterol check as well. So there'd be one blood draw at that time. And we want to measure a liver enzyme, specifically ALT. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's very, of course, easily available and, uh, and not cost prohibitive. So we want to add that to the screening tests. And especially if you have an individual that qualifies as overweight or obese based on standard uh, CDC growth charts uh, for their age and sex, mm-hmm. um, for BMI above 85th or 95th percentile, respectively. We want them to be seen by a pediatric gastroenterologist. That is our recommendation. So let me encapsulate that one more time. If you are above 85th percentile body mass index between the ages of 9 and 11 and have an ALT checked uh, and it is elevated uh, by norms that are set by NHANES or caliber data, uh, for people who are not used to it, NHANES is the uh, U.S. Uh, standardized survey that happens for nutrition uh, for more than four decades now almost. And Caliper is the Canadian uh, uh, study that has been looking at standardizing uh, testing uh, and, and analytes of different paradigms biochemistry. So both of them came up with very similar normative values for ALT around 22 to 25 for males and females in, in the age group we're talking about. And therefore, if that is the upper limit of normal being 22 or 25, which is surprising to a lot of people, especially if you look at our ranges that are published on our, on our um, lab reports, um, we took the liberty of saying that 
has been proven by not one, but two large epidemiological databases. And that's what we're going to pin on in terms of our upper limit of normal of ALT. So, um, uh, so if it's an elevated ALT in the context of a child is overweight or obese at that age, then we should be doing further workup through the offices of a pediatric gastroenterologist. So once they come to see us, like what do you usually do? Like, do you start with an ultrasound or what other kind of modalities do you use? So in terms of the workup, there's definitely some utility of an ultrasound for elevated liver enzymes, right? You want to make sure there's no gallstones or cysts or God forbid a tumor um, at compressing on, on, on bile drainage or something like that. However, those are pretty much what we want to, to understand. Those things are pretty much the things we want to understand from an ultrasound. We're not diagnosing fatty liver disease based on an ultrasound. Uh, it is not a good test to do so. Um, what we advocate for is a comprehensive um, screening of other non-obesity-related causes of elevated liver enzymes so that we're not discriminatory. I mean, unfortunately, obesity, being overweight, is a very common problem in pediatrics now. And therefore, other uncommon problems are still possible in a large population base, such as overweight and obesity. You can uh, uh, still have autoimmune hepatitis or Wilson's disease or apple and antitrypsin deficiency. That's a different debate as the cost-effectiveness analysis. But if you take it from one child's perspective, right. I think everybody would still agree that we can't discriminate based on them being overweight. Um, that is what we do as the next step while in parallel advocating for lifestyle change, mm -hmm. especially diet, um, making changes in the diet, as we talked about before. That would be the first step. They come back to see us in a three-month period. Um, all the lab tests we did, uh, nine times out of 10, they will be normal. They will not have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and they'll not have autoimmune hepatitis and so forth. At that point in time, if they have still not lost weight, then we're thinking about more uh, defined uh, investigations, um, imaging, mm -hmm. uh, have better tools than we had 20 years ago when we started on this journey in pediatric NAPLD. Uh, MRI-based technologies like MRI PDFF, proton density fat fraction, can tell you very specifically how much fat there's in the liver. Uh, MRI-based tests like elastography can tell you the stiffness of the liver. Point-of-care ultrasound-based technologies can also give you transient elastography measures um, uh, to get a sense of how severe the inflammation and or fibrosis is inside the liver. So that would be step number two. Um, and again, reinforce dietary advice. If they have stopped drinking sugar-sweetened beverages, then we go on to portion control and balancing or rebalancing, recalibrating how much protein you take versus how many carbs you take. So in the same size of the plate, more protein, less carbs. Um, and call them back again in three months. And then so the third visit, you're talking about uh, if they have not lost weight still, despite all your best endeavors, which is one in two patients, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, then you're going to talk about uh, potentially uh, doing histologic confirmation of, and staging of the disease through a liver biopsy. Okay, yeah. So kind of like a tiered evaluation really based on the clinical scenario 
first step is kind of ruling out other reasons for an elevated ALT. Second is kind of trying to quantify fat fraction, potentially stiffness, and then finally confirming with kind of the most invasive of the tests, the liver biopsy. That's super helpful. That was great. Yeah, we, we, we definitely have to build rapport with these patients. And the backdrop is always going to be that this is a, we mentioned this word before, this is a disease that is coming from uh, lifestyle mm -hmm. and treatment overall has to be driven through lifestyle. Now, are there going to be individuals who need our support? Um, yes, uh, after you have biopsy proven NASH, uh, we do uh, still continue to think, uh, based on data from the tonic trial back in 2010, um, uh, that vitamin E is a crutch that can be used for a, maybe up to two years uh, based on safety data. But again, it's a crutch while you are trying to, probably similar to what you talked about, Miralax. We want you to change your diet so you don't have functional constipation, but we can help you with Miralax along the way. Um, so I think vitamin E is along those lines, but there's a slew, Peter, um, uh, Jason, there's a slew, a litany of medications coming down the pipe. As pediatric gastroenterologists, that is going to be the challenge because I can, 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 you know, I'm not a betting man, but, but I, I can, I can wager maybe a dollar or something, uh, that pediatricians will want our input, which, anti-NASH agent to put the 12-year-old on once these things start to get FDA approved. And they're, they're in the pipeline. They're already in phase two, phase three trials in adults, uh, very soon coming to pediatric in terms of trials as well. Uh, and they are not innocuous. There's going to be a long laundry list of medications that will be in our, in our portfolio for biopsy-proven NASH. And then we will be in the mix of it right there. To, to round out the discussion of lifestyle because uh, or or treatment beginning with lifestyle that you you've already spoken to quite a lot um, we talked uh, you you've mentioned already about sort of again that tiered approach you know starting with the low hanging fruit uh, um, <laughs> with the sugar sweetened beverages and and just added sugars just in general you mentioned about you know portion control and changing the composition of the plate um, so so that's certainly the 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 energy in side of things maybe a couple of the things that maybe I'd ask for your your comment on is is one um, within your team within your your group there how how uh, valuable is your dietitian social work um, other members of your multi-d team to to help with that side of things and then maybe a, a second question is around whether or not you give any specific guidance around physical activity and what what's what impact that has the battle is never fought alone in these kinds of situations so we definitely need members of, of the team that are non-physician, non-practitioners, um, non-MD non practitioners, I should say. Um, so having a dietitian is a prerequisite in any fatty liver disease clinic to, so that the child hears, even though it may be the same advice uh, that the team has agreed upon a priori, um, it, it has to be given by different people who have different training and exposure so that they can speak to it with their expertise. And so a dietitian, an RD, is an integral part of a fatty liver disease clinic. Social worker can be very helpful. Psychologists can be very helpful because these are 
lifestyle changes and to be able to understand the limitations of their home. Uh, maybe it's it's too difficult to get outside uh, at night, especially. It might not be safe. Maybe there's no good access to healthy foods in their neighborhood. It's a, a food desert or a grocery desert. So uh, social work can definitely be helpful. And psychology, what's the motivation? Actually, I would advocate for the entire team going through modules, if nothing else, of uh, motivational interviewing. How to motivate the child to make a lifestyle change is not one person's responsibility, even though it may be the expertise of a psychologist. And then uh, if you're in an academic environment, having uh, uh, research partners uh, is, is critical because there's a lot to learn about this. Uh, it's, it's still relatively a young field, um, and even though some of us are getting old. Um, <laughs> It, it definitely needs a lot more work. So having a research component or a quality improvement component uh, it definitely should be thought when you're setting up such a clinic. The harder question, harder part of your question uh, was, uh, how much do I talk about exercise? So I'm very conflicted. Uh, I do understand the data that exercise is helpful. I do understand that it is good for your heart, for your muscle, for your insulin sensitivity, and so on and so forth. And, and maybe even for fatty liver to, to, to decrease the amount. There's, there's definitely data there. But I want to pick my battles, Jason. I, I can't ask them to do everything because then they do nothing. Um, uh, and, and therefore, the bang for my buck, the minutes that we spend together, I focus on diet. Uh, we do mention that 30 minutes of exercise at least three to four times a week is good for the, all the reasons we just talked about, but it can't be the focus. If, if that becomes the focus, uh, it's the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, in my opinion, because it, to be honest, we're trying to lose weight here and weight loss uh, through exercise will need hours and hours of exercise. Right. All of us have been on a treadmill or exercise bike and we finished that 45 minute workout and we have burned through 300 calories. <laughs> it's a can of Coke. Yep. That's a can of Coke. So I'd rather stop the can of Coke, rather stop the fruit juice from coming into the house or the chocolate milk being, being, being swapped out for white milk, uh, uh, non-flavored milk. That's where I want to want to use my time and effort. It's just a choice. That makes sense. It's like the saying, uh, six pack abs are made in the kitchen. I have no experience <laughs> with that personally, but that's what I've heard from uh, <laughs> men's health. <laughs> Touche. Anyways. So, um, so, okay. One thing you alluded to also is, uh, the coming wave of medications that people are going to be wanting or maybe thinking about using for these patients. Um, can you kind of highlight maybe one or two of the ones that you feel like have the most promise? Like, which are the ones that you think that we really will be using on a regular basis? I honestly cannot. Mm -hmm. uh, a, I have a lot of conflicts of interest in that area. Sure. So it would be improper for me to pick one or two. I can talk about classes yeah. of medications, yeah. if that makes sense. So I think there, there definitely are um, tinkerings, medications that are going to tinker with the feedback loop um, through bile acid signaling. Uh, there are medications that are going to tinker with lipogenesis. There are uh, anti-fibrotic agents that are coming down the pike. Um, and there are uh, 
antioxidant type medications as well. So I think those are the broad buckets where you're trying to influence signaling uh, through uh, our feedback loops that are already physiologically present to uh, from the intestine to the liver specifically through bile acid type signaling, lipogenesis, lipolysis, uh, fat, so fat metabolism, uh, redox, inflammation, oxidative stress, and finally, fibrogenesis and reversal of the same. So those are the big buckets that people are working on. But uh, for me to talk about winners and losers is almost like uh, these these um, uh, companies from Wall Street uh, calling me up. I do not talk to them. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. So exciting things are coming. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. There's there's many, many in the uh, uh, getting close to approval on the adult side already. And guess what? Next is us. Yeah. What role does bariatric surgery play in the sort of global approach to NAFLD and, and how, how does that actually work or lead to liver uh, improvement? Is it just as simple as weight loss? It's a necessary evil, I would say. Uh, nobody wants to have a adolescent teenager undergo such a invasive procedure, such as weight loss surgery. And, and, and traditionally, it used to be wound by gastric bypass, so pretty involved, intense now, the vast majority that are happening, uh, which is about 2,000 odd in the United States every year for adolescent bariatric surgery, uh, numbers-wise, um, is sleeve gastrectomy. So vertical sleeve gastrectomy is the vast majority of those surgeries that are happening, which is still invasive, um, but, but uh, mostly done laparoscopically. What's the mechanism um, of, of response to these surgeries? The fallacy... Um, uh, or the easy thought process reflection would be that this is you make the stomach smaller. And if you're doing written by gastric bypass, you're bypassing a lot of the stomach or something like that. And there's restriction and or malabsorption that produces weight loss. Wrong. Right. We have lots of data uh, to speak to that, that this is actually changes in signaling, right? Changes in satiety signaling. Changes in bile acid physiology, driving signaling to the liver and to the brain. And why do we, uh, if, I, if I may just summarize it, why are we so confident in saying that's not restrictive? Because if we knock out these, these um, signaling gatekeepers, the receptors, and do bariatric surgery on obese mice, the surgery does not work. Hmm. You need the signaling to produce the weight loss. And... Uh, if you look at human data, there's a ton of improvement, uh, both adults and pediatric, uh, adolescent data. There's a ton of improvement that happens before the weight loss has happened in terms of insulin sensitivity, in terms of improving um, uh, clinical parameters. So there's a disconnect there between weight loss and improvement, metabolic improvement, uh, which behooves us to think a little bit more broadly about how this, this, these surgeries work. And, and um, in terms of pediatrics, I wish we didn't have to do these, first of all, even the 2000 that are happening today. But if we are to do any kind of procedure, uh, let's make it as my hope in the long run. Uh, and, and this is a challenge again to the trainees out there um, to convert these into as non-invasive as possible. So what am I alluding to here? I'm alluding to endoscopic technologies. Mm -hmm. Advanced endoscopy is a growing field in pediatrics 
And I would love to start to see some of our advanced endoscopists, either trainees or practicing physicians, get into endobariatrics. If we're going to have to do a bariatric procedure on a adolescent, at least let's do it endoscopically and not do it surgically. And, and it's happening very safely, at least in the adult side, but there is a desperate need to transition it, in my opinion, to the pediatric side. If we're going to have to do, uh, and I have to follow the right indications, right pathways, and you get to the point where you think this is the right thing for a child, a adolescent, then at least let's do it endoscopically. Yeah, yeah. So our last question about fatty liver disease specifically, you know, centers around some of the topics that we've touched on earlier in the conversation about how challenging it is for the child to have to make these changes once they've already developed this lifestyle, how the how society and the system has put them into a situation where it's very challenging to do that. Um, what is the role of, you know, of ag advocacy or working with our patients and families to try to prevent some of these, uh, some of these changes? Like, wh what do you think about that? Peter, I should have met you 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, so, you know, I, it's, it's kind of encapsulates my journey uh, a little bit because, because I started, um, as I mentioned, it was a hallway or doorway conversation with my mentor to, to start working in this field um, in basic science. Mm -hmm. Right. And I thought I'm going to find the magic pill. Right. And then it became, all right, we have to uh, uh, understand the disease in the clinic and, developed a clinical uh, uh, paradigm for these children and help one child at a time. Um, then the realization that you were just mentioning, this is not a one child problem. And this is not even an equal problem amongst children because children who have the wrong polymorphisms because of their ethnicity or genetics have worse disease. It is a societal problem. So it needs a societal answer. So, in the context of NASPGIN, I went from the nutrition committee to the research committee. Now I'm at the advocacy committee. Yeah. So you, I should have you know, started with the advocacy committee. <laughs> my, <laughs> but my point is, um, we need to have our voices heard. And change has to come. The AAP guidelines have to change. The nutrition guidelines have to change. We have to fight back on false advertising to children. It's not fair to have these cartoon characters jumping off of of car cartons of X, Y, or Z, right. which have tons of added sugar in those contents. So moving kids from processed foods to natural, from fruit juices to fruits, you know, that transition is, it behooves us to be the voices that lead that change. We're NASP again, we're pediatric gastroenterologists, hepatologists, and nutrition. We do, do not and should not forget that we have nutrition in our name. Completely I think agree. that's I think that's hugely important, uh, and and like you said, we we have a voice, and we we need to use it for sure. Um, maybe just taking a step back, when when you look at your career so far, what do you think has been the most valuable advice that you've received from, for instance, one of your mentors, and and what advice do you have for our listeners? I I have never been able to match the advice that that I received um, from Dr. Balistrieri. And he's probably said this to many and all, or all of his of, of, of the, his trainees um, and mentees. So I'll repeat the same. So this is the advice I keep to heart and I pass along. Start with the end in mind. 
You know, if you, if you don't have a goal, you're never going to get there. And I need to uh, make sure that all the energies we're expending are saving, preventing, <laughs> taking, not taking in the fruit juice has to be for a reason, for an end point that we have in mind. So that's my advice to, I'm passing it on, Dr. B. Uh, so credit to you. Start with the end in mind. Really, really good advice. Uh, I think a lot of people are working really hard, but without that, uh, without that direction, that path laid out ahead of them. Right, right. And yeah, so once again, thank you so much for joining us. That was an awesome conversation. Uh, I think that's really going to be super helpful for all of our listeners. But any final words for our listeners? Uh, click on that red button that says, uh, you know, what do we call that? Um, subscribe yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. We agree. But, yeah. <laughs> but once again, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one of one or all of the following three things. First, tell one person about the podcast. Tell tell a fellow, tell a colleague, tell a trainee, um, tell them about the podcast. Uh, two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, those those five star reviews really do help other people discover our podcast and and learn about it. And the last one, the third item you can do is on our Buzzsprout page. There's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPAM Foundation. Uh, you can also get there through www.naspgan.org or NASPGA org, uh, And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, everybody. Bye and stay safe, okay? Bye.